Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. We aren't joined by Eric this week, unfortunately. We had another guest lined up who had to cancel last minute. So subbing in today is my better half, Pat, a Harry Potter fan himself. He's been on the show a couple times now. Welcome back to the show, Pat. Hello. I'm so excited to be back. Micah asked me a very important question last night. He said, if Pat's going to be on the show, who's going to bring you coffee while recording? For anybody who watches the live streams, they know that about halfway through the episodes we record on Saturday mornings, a Starbucks cup normally magically flies through the air in front of the camera with a mystery hand. And that's Pat delivering the coffee. That is so sweet. Now, you should be getting him coffee this morning since he joined the show. I did. Got my Trenta. There you go. Before we get to our main discussion today, there are a couple of news updates. First of all, Hogwarts Legacy, this open world Wizarding World game that we've all been really looking forward to, has now been pushed to a February 10th, 2023 release date. It was previously expected to come out this holiday season. What's more... The release date for Nintendo Switch is going to be shared at a later date. So PlayStation, Xbox, I guess PC are getting it February. Switch? Who knows? I'm wondering if they need more development time on the Switch version because the graphics aren't going to be as good. The Switch just isn't capable of those graphics that PlayStation 5 and Xbox whatever can put out. Um, But I'm also wondering if they're looking at the fact that the highly, highly, highly anticipated Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild sequel is coming out in the spring for Nintendo Switch. And they're like, we don't want to compete with that. So we're just going to release Hogwarts Legacy later in the year. (laughs) It's definitely disappointing because I know we were all looking forward to it. I think, you know, it's probably disappointing to them to miss out on holiday sales yeah this would have been a cool thing um to get you know under the tree or whatever your holiday celebrations are i'm still probably gonna look for a used copy so i'm gonna be a little bit late on the uptake but (laughs) yeah we we do what we can laura's gonna play breath of the wild the sequel first and then get to hogwarts legacy later in the year it sounds like actually yeah probably just being honest (laughs) so looking forward to that zelda game yeah if the switch is delayed that much like that would be really unfortunate because everything will be spoiled for everybody i think you have to play it on these next gen systems playstation 5 whatever that xbox is called i'm sorry i don't know it series x i guess um it the graphics look so much better than they will on switch it says coming out the day after like the day after my birthday. So this is the perfect birthday present for me. Oh, hint, hint. I'm going to be hint, ignoring hint. you during your birthday week. <laughs> no, no. Micah, you have a switch. I don't think you have any other consoles. So are right. you worried? I, I was just going to say that is uh, I right now. All I have is the Nintendo switch. So I'm going to have to wait patiently and hopefully not get spoiled by you or anybody else. But in better news, they actually released a 20 minute a hot summer day ASMR video, Hogwarts Legacy did, and it highlights how beautiful and peaceful this game's Wizarding World is. It's stunning. Oh my God. Yeah, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched a few minutes. I personally liked it. I thought it was very calming. However, we also know that some people don't care for ASMR. (laughs) (laughs) So I do wonder how this is landing across the community at large, but I thought it was stunning. 
really, really gorgeous. What I thought was really cool about it, though, is you could see all the different people walking around, which is just not something I think that I was accustomed to in previous Harry Potter games, maybe the Lego ones, but just seeing the world and seeing that there are actually normal people, witches, wizards walking around is is fun. I mean, I don't know. Can you go up to them? Can you steal stuff from them? I know we're going to be talking about <laughs> Mundungus. He, he came to mind. It was really well done. Beautiful design. Yeah. And this is real in-game footage, by the way. What really excited me about this was that I think they have a good hold on what fans are looking for out of this game. Fans want to live at Hogwarts. They don't just want to battle and play through the main story. They just want to relax in the Wizarding World at Hogwarts. And this ASMR video leans into that idea. And I think they're also pretty in touch with fandom because there are so many unofficial Hogwarts ASMR videos on YouTube already. So they created one of their own to show off how good their Wizarding World is. So that just really excited me. And now I'm wondering if they're going to release a couple more ASMR videos in the months ahead. Maybe they'll do a winter one. Ooh, that would be cool. I want a fall one, like a yeah. cozy fall one. That would be great. Yes. A like cozy the leaves fall crackling. Mm-hmm. I do think like it's not traditional ASMR is like what people are thinking now, no. like, like crinkling paper. It's like it's it's a nature scape, really, right. is what it is. I do wonder if the game is going to be conducive to that sort of gameplay, maybe for people who aren't interested in the story, and they're not maybe super interested in advancing the story very much, and they just kind of want to explore and experience the environment. I wonder if there's going to be enough there for people to be satisfied by that. Yeah, it's a good question. And just like kind of going around the world and like collecting little things. I assume yeah. building collections will be a big part of this game, like so many other open world games. So really looking forward to this. So far, it's been pretty impressive. Hopefully they don't let us down. I'm actually kind of glad that they did delay the game because I really want it to be as great as possible right out of the gate. We're going to be so disappointed if this game sucks because we've been clamoring for an open world, beautiful Wizarding World game for so long. And finally, one is teed up for us. Yeah. Well, also, there's a lot of pressure on this game because basically every other post book seven project that has come out of the Wizarding World has not been universally beloved. I think that'll be the diplomatic way of saying it. So I think there is a lot of pressure on this game to be good because you're looking at it on the heels of Cursed Child, Fantastic Beasts not doing very well. Um, So yeah, there's definitely a lot of pressure. It also shows a return to form, I think, because it's like Hogwarts. That's where people want to be. We saw that they tried to do that in Fantastic Beasts 3 with all the marketing to make it about Hogwarts. But the fact that this game is actually truly immersive Hogwarts, I think, will be a good benefit. Micah, I need you to buy a PlayStation 5. <laughs> I need you to enjoy enjoy the Wizarding World in all its glory. All right. Well, maybe <laughs> uh, I'll treat myself since I just had a birthday. There you go. You did just have That's a birthday. That's right. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. Did you like that transition, too? Yes, it was very good. <laughs> this is our other news item today because... Micah, you may have uh, been scrolling through your social media feed on your birthday, 
And we surprised you with a birthday message from Jacob Kowalski himself, Dan Fogler. Yeah. (laughs) What did you think when you first saw this message? Dude, I don't know what the bleep he was on, but he was having a lot of fun with that video. (laughs) So let's play it for everybody. Micah, for Micah, for Micah, for Micah. Booked by MuggleCast. Dun, 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 dun. Here's my magic wand. Yo! Okay. <laughs> you are a goat aficionado, Micah. <laughs> who doesn't love Aberforth? <laughs> um, who likes goats? Your birthday soon. October, no. 817. See, here's the thing. I'm 1020, right? Oct. October. <laughs> Octagon octopus that's eight not ten so why do you have (laughs) august that makes no sense micah loves you hey micah (laughs) guess what i know let me tell you something jacob and the bakery in the fantastic beast movies is also my favorite part um (laughs) i like azkaban that's my favorite harry potter movie anyway i'm a hufflepuff (laughs) have a happy birthday micah Uh oh That was an amazing video. Uh, thank you so much. I loved how he was discovering all of the like pieces as he was going along rather than like right. preparing something. I just love all off the cuff. It was great. Yeah, he was hell bent on doing that in one take, I think. <laughs> that was I was going to say that was a one take video. He put everything into it, man. He did. He grabbed when he like grabs a wand. He's actually grabbing like the curtain drawstring. <laughs> But yeah, so Micah, in the Cameo notes, we bought this through Cameo. I told him that um, Micah is a big fan of goats and that Aberforth's your favorite character. (laughs) They don't give you much room to like send a message. So you got to just hit on the most important points. I also just love that Azkaban is his favorite Harry Potter movie because I feel like Azkaban gets a lot of hate in this fandom community. And I personally really like that movie. It's not my favorite one, but I really like it feels validating to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. I used to hate it, but now it's climbed up there for me. I'm sure Eric will love the fact that uh, he's a Hufflepuff. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we should have asked him what Jacob's birthday was. Damn, I just realized oh, that. Man. No, we should have told him what Jacob's birthday was. <laughs> 1020, clearly. Oct. <laughs> Oct. Eight. August. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. <laughs> the mental gymnastics were uh, pretty impressive there. All right. So let's move into our main discussion today. This is a follow up to the discussion we had on episode 568. We were talking about completely indefensible characters and maybe trying to defend them. And uh, Laura, do you want to get us started today? Yeah, for sure. So the way we kicked it off last time and the way we'll kick it off this time is by picking a top character that we think is completely indefensible, just to give us a little bit of a warm up. But we may end up defending these characters later on in the discussion. You never know. It's a fun exercise for sure. Um, so last time we had, you know, our full regular panel on and Andrew had chosen Lockhart Eric chose Quirrell, Micah chose Petunia, and I chose Umbridge. So think about your number two pick for most indefensible characters. 
And I haven't noted here, we can think about it as us building a bench of really crappy people for us to try and defend later. (laughs) So Andrew, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, so joining my bench is Lucius Malfoy. And setting aside the numerous ways that Lucius has been evil as a Death Eater, and there are many, I find that there's something particularly sinister about him having a son at Hogwarts, where his sworn enemy Dumbledore is, as Lucius continues to side with and support Voldemort. I have always found it very unsettling how he had an active connection, that being Draco, to the school while being a Death Eater. And that makes him indefensible. Yeah, he's like exploiting his connection to the school through his child. Mm-hmm. which also puts Draco in a terrible position. And I know we talked about Draco, I think somewhat on the last installment of this, as to whether or not at what point in the series he could see his redemption coming through or where we could see that start. But the fact that a child was put in that position is definitely indefensible. I agree. It's a perfect example of a family of influence and power being able to stay in power after this first wizarding war. Because presumably Lucius Malfoy was a known Death Eater before that. And so he should have been in jail. He shouldn't be a ministry official and being able to conduct business inside the ministry, you know, buddy up next to Fudge, to your point, having his son go to Hogwarts and all the inside information that he's able to get from his son. I think he's an indefensible character when it comes to his family, first and foremost. Like putting his family in danger? Yeah, I think he puts Narcissa and Draco in a really tough position, and we see that later on in the series. He's also very, at the very least, mentally abusive towards Draco. I'm thinking about in Chamber of Secrets when Harry overhears him berating Draco for getting lower scores on his exams than Hermione. And the way that was done, I mean, first of all, it's not appropriate, but there was a lot of venom to his words and the way he said that. And it was just degrading. And I have to think embarrassing for a child to have their parent shame them for, you know, doing a little bit worse than one of his peers, especially knowing the loaded way that they think about Hermione's blood heritage, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think at minimum, I mean, he shouldn't, while Draco was in school, he shouldn't have been allowed to be one of the school governors. Yeah. Yeah. Huge conflict of interest. Yeah, exactly. Like you're putting all this money into the school and whatever purely for your child's education, which I get is like what you want to do. But I think after Voldemort's first fall, he strategically placed himself in that position to make sure that the school was still going to have some sort of connection to the dark side of things, just so that in the future it would be easier because he's still funding all that education. Now, Pat, you found out you were going to come on the show about 14 hours ago. Yes. And when I told you the uh, discussion today, you said, oh, this is easy for me. I I hate Mundungus Fletcher the most with a passion okay so tell us about that why do you hate him with a fiery passion and he's completely indefensible he is my absolute least favorite character of everybody like i even hate him more than umbridge really go off he is a dirty drunk who is 
fully self-centered and is only around for the opportunity. I think there is something else in it for him to be a part of the the order rather than being a death eater because one I don't know if it's a I think it's a trope where if you're on the dark side of things and you have your meetings it's always very like down to business this is what we do and then we all disperse the trope for like good side of things in every genre that we're in it's always a big family you're taking care of each other so everybody in the order is taking care of each other making meals for each other He's just riding off their coattails constantly, stealing from everybody, never to make himself any better. Like, I don't think he's saving any of the money that he's getting when he sells stuff. He just buys more booze and then gets drunk and passes out again. Like, it's just a constant cycle for him, only ever thinking about himself and what his next opportunity to con somebody is going to be. And I really think Dumbledore only kept him around just to keep an eye on him, because if he were to go to the Death Eater side, I think he would have a lot of connections of just like going down Nocturnally and all those kind of places, just getting dark artifacts for them that could make the Death Eaters more powerful. Oh, that's, that's a, a good really theory. Good point. And in thinking about Mundungus ahead of this discussion today, I found myself kind of like on the fence where I was like, well, he was part of the original order. So he originally joined the order during the first wizarding war. Does that imply that at some base level, he's anti Voldemort, but I think you raise a really good point, Pat. He's an opportunist. And if you think about which of these two groups is most likely to kill him, it's the Death Eaters. So he sees <laughs> that if he partners up with the Order, he can not only benefit from being around these people, but they're also very unlikely to kill him. <laughs> yeah. And I think like when he was supposed to be tailing Harry in the fifth book, that I think, obviously we don't know, but my theory is, is Dumbledore had something in it for him. Like, hey, you follow Harry these days. I'll give you a bottle of fire whiskey or like something yeah. like that. Like just, just as like a, please do this. I need you to do it, yeah. but I need to give you something for it. He gets a little doggy treat at the end of each mission. Kind of <laughs> that also sounds like a thing Dumbledore would do. Good boy. Good like, boy. let me send this drunk totally. opportunist to follow a 15 year old around. That won't look weird. Who leaves in the middle anyways. Yeah. One of the things I was wondering though, Laura, off of what you said about how he was in the order the first time around is, was he always this way? Or did something happen to him during the first Wizarding War or maybe just after that turned him into this type of person? It's a good question. Yeah, maybe he lost somebody and just went down, down a, like just spiraled. I mean, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. But even if, even if he did, that still doesn't excuse the current behavior, right? I think... It's one of these cases where we can anticipate that multiple truths may exist. I know multiple truths exist with my person that I'm going to talk about here in a few moments. So, yeah, I mean, he might something bad might have happened to him. But then again, something bad happened to everybody and not everybody turned into a petty thief. You're saying it is our choices. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. These are really good points about Dong. I was ready to put all the blame on Dumbledore, but now I'm thinking, to Pat's point, Dumbledore 
keeps him around because if he let him go to the dark side, he could really be helping the dark side with some dark weapons. It actually makes a lot of sense for Dumbledore to keep him on his side with that in mind. Classic Dumbledore, though. He doesn't have the ability, though, to fully kind of see what keeping somebody like that around may do. He's only thinking about it in the moment. Here's the question. Do we blame him for Mad-Eye's death? I do. I think that, yes, he was asked to be a part of the Seven Potters, but he didn't have to commit. There were other people in the Order that could have done it as well. Like, he still said, okay, yeah, I'll go. If he was really going to be that kind of person that was just going to dip out when it got too scary, he should have said, no, I'm not going to. And maybe it was a moment where he was like, okay, maybe I do want to change my ways and I do want to be a part of this. But he still left. Like, if you were going to be that, if, if that was going to be your redemption moment and you wanted it to be, you should have stayed. And he still was like, peace, I'm scared. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if this was a movieism or not, but doesn't he say at Privet Drive, technically I was coerced? I think that is a movieism. I don't know if it's in the Maybe. book, but I know he definitely, he says that. But regardless, I, I blame him for Mad-Eye's death. I, I think that at the same time, though, we talked about this when we did the the Deathly Hallows episode not that long ago, that... I don't think Mad-Eye would have trusted anybody else beside himself to take Dung with him. Yeah. True. It's too much of a liability. And he specifically says that too. He specifically makes Dung go with him so he can keep an eye on him because he knows Mm. that he's shifty. Which could have been maybe the downfall for Moody. Like he probably was looking for him instead of protecting himself in that moment as well. It is book canon that he was reluctant to be one of the seven potters. Yeah. Well, who came up with this plan? Whose idea was this? Whose idea was this? It's probably Moody's, I'm guessing. So in a way, I guess it could be Moody's own fault. Yeah. I mean, I think that Moody is the kind of character who accepts that any time he walks into a scenario like this, it's very likely that he won't walk out of it. Right. So I think he I think he walked into it clear eyed for sure. But was it the right choice to include Mundungus? I'm just thinking about all the other members of the order who didn't join in on the seven potters who could have been there, you know? Yeah. I mean, he wasn't going to take another Weasley for sure. Right. Because Molly was already panicking about the twins being there and Ron. And wasn't Arthur there too? Yeah. It's like half the Weasleys. Well, so is Bill. (laughs) And P.S. It didn't have to be seven potters, but the author just has an obsession with the number seven. So they could (laughs) have just dropped one of them, could have dropped Dung, like the Dung that he is. And then then Mad-Eye could have still been alive today, maybe. I I said this, I think it was the last time we did, like his name literally means Yeah. (laughs) You get what you get when you bring somebody like that on board. You play crappy games, you get crappy results. Dung bombed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Micah, what about you? All right. So I actually ended up going with Professor Slughorn. And while to most people, he may not normally fall into such a category, to me, he has one of the most indefensible actions in terms of any character in this series. 
And we know Slughorn is horribly guilt-ridden about the information he gives to Tom Riddle in terms of the Horcruxes. He even edited his memory to prevent anyone from finding out what he had done. But this man for years, years, decades, held the secret to Voldemort's immortality, and he failed to share it with anybody. He was more concerned about his own reputation. He even goes into hiding when Voldemort returns so that he's not killed because he has this information inside of him. If you want to go like full scale, he's responsible for a lot of people being killed between the time Tom Riddle leaves Hogwarts and then rises back to power when Harry's in school. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's inevitable that Voldemort would have or Tom Riddle would have still become what he was and he would have found out at some point, but he may have, it may have taken a few years longer. So there is a good amount of lives that could have probably been saved. Yeah. And also just, I think we all look back and we've all made mistakes and we've looked back on things that we wish we hadn't done, but it makes a huge difference if you own up to that thing, especially if it's having consequences in present day. I think it would have made a big difference if he had just come forward and been like, yeah, I did this, (laughs) you know, because then it wouldn't have taken Dumbledore as long to substantiate his belief that this is what was happening. Right. Right. Slughorn could have just cut multiple books worth of investigation down (laughs) for Dumbledore. Right. We all can think of situations where in this case, a student is coming to a teacher and asking about something that the teacher probably should be flagging to somebody else that's a little bit higher up than himself. Now, at the time, Slughorn is head of house for Tom, but even, I mean, it would have been Dumbledore, it would have been Dippet, right, at, at that time. But going to somebody and saying, hey, there's this teenager that's asking about creating Horcruxes. Maybe we should uh, explore this a little bit more. Yeah. Man, from an academic standpoint, though, that is a very difficult line to walk because you never want to discourage students from being curious. It can be a little difficult sometimes to figure out where to draw that line of like, is this curiosity or is it malicious? And do I need to report this? Because either way, you run the risk of potentially getting a student into a lot a lot of hot water over maybe what was an innocent question, maybe what was a naive question, not realizing how serious that topic could be. So I can understand from that perspective, maybe some reluctance to like out Tom for having the question. But I think at the end of the day, Slughorn's sort of weakness is that everything comes back to himself. It's never, it was never about, for example, how do I protect this student and how do I guide this student? It was always about what does it make me look like that I gave the student this information? I think that's his downfall every time. Yeah, great point. And we know too, like how crafty Tom Riddle was like I don't remember the exact timeline of this but this also could have like these discussions could have been happening while he had the Chamber of Secrets open because weren't those around his last like maybe sixth or seventh year Hmm. at Hogwarts so like 
he's convincing everybody that Hagrid is doing all of this stuff to the school while he's also trying to find this information out of the Horcruxes. Mm -hmm. So he's just manipulating everybody across the board that he is this perfect student in every way. When in all reality, he ends up killing a girl by the end of the year. Right. While he's trying to do this at the same time. Yeah, I I think he's already begun the process of creating horcruxes by the time this conversation is had. He's just looking for that validation from somebody that he considers to be, you know, of importance. But yeah, the fact that he didn't give up this information is certainly when Voldemort came back to power in, you know, Harry's time and that he just sat on it and he was in hiding and he was a coward says a lot about him. Yeah, and this whole modifying your memory thing is a new level of lying as well. I know. <laughs> like that's particularly bad. Like you know it's so bad you need to edit your own memory. Yeah, you're almost trying to lie to yourself. Yeah, I mean he is. Like literally. Cuz you're so ashamed. Yeah. Everything comes back to Dumbledore at some point, but like from the beginning Dumbledore also is like, mm, pretty sure Hagrid didn't open the chamber. Pretty sure it was somebody else. Had a good feeling it was Tom. Why in the decades since that happened, did he not go back to Slughorn and try to figure this out then instead of waiting until the sixth book, you know? Well, because Hogwarts really needed a gamekeeper and Dumbledore True. is the ultimate puzzle master. And he was like, ah, peace, you fit here. <laughs> All right, Laura, who's your character? Yeah, well, I was going to say all roads lead back to Voldemort, don't they? Mm -hmm. Mine is Merope Gaunt. I thought a good deal about this one. We don't get to see a ton of her in the books, but what we do see, I think ultimately the results of her bewitching Tom Riddle Sr., which effectively amounts to coercion of them getting married and her getting pregnant, I think that that is absolutely indefensible. It's a pretty clear cut case um, that also led to, I mean, it directly led to the rise of Voldemort, you know, the darkest wizard of the time. I do think there's some nuance here, though. You know, obviously, her story is very sad, right? Like she lives in this abusive situation with her father and her brothers. She's desperate to get out. Um, So I understand what led to this happening with her, what led to her making these choices. But again, it does come down to it always being about the choices you make. And I don't think there's any circumstance that makes what Merobi Gaunt did defensible. Yeah, we've spoken before about how you know, the issues with love potions. Whenever you're love potioning or bewitching, that's a fast pass to you're completely indefensible. Yeah. I also, in thinking about this, I was thinking about other times that we've seen or heard of love potions in the core seven bucks, or even just in the wizarding world in general. And I feel like it's always women who are using the love potions, Mm. which I don't love. (laughs) <laughs> it's very sexist yeah, to imply that women are just so obsessive that they will always resort to this as a means to get what they want. So from a writing perspective, I am happy to critique that because I'm like, oh, I think that's really funny that 
even though in the real world, if you want to look at real world examples of quote, love potions, it's not something that is exclusive to women using. And yet in the wizarding world, right, women are the ones roofing people weird. Yeah. It also gives off the impression in the books that it's always the women who are desperate for love. Yeah. You know, there's nothing else to them. They just want love. They're desperate for it. They'll do anything. Yeah. I mean, what else do they have? You know? Right. If you don't have a man, then, <laughs> then wh- that's what it, that's why what it live comes at across. all. Yeah. Right. So like as a woman reading this, I'm like, well, yeah, obviously this is horrible. And you know, set the whole series of events of this entire book series into motion because of this horrible choice she made. But then I'm also like, why is it always the women? (laughs) Really bothers me. That's a good point. That is indefensible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I had never really thought about before, but you're absolutely right how it's, it's only the women who have used the love potions, at least as has been explicitly described in the books. Like Fred and George were were selling love potions. Presumably there were some guys that were buying them. But they were marketing them to women. Yeah, they were in fancy little bottles that look like perfume and stuff like that. Like they were like all like frilly, stuff like that. And there, you know, you can't forget about Queenie in Fantastic Beasts. Mm -hmm. She bewitches Jacob. Can't forget about Ramilda Vane trying to bewitch Harry. Ron almost dies because of it. If you take like a feminist lens towards reading Harry Potter, you will find a lot of things like this. And it's okay. You can still, I still love and enjoy these books, but I think that it adds to the depth of reading the series to be able to find these items and say, hey, you know, like it's very clear these were written at a particular point in time and from a particular perspective, right? The Queenie example is interesting because that was only written about five years ago. You would have thought there would have been some changed perspectives, but no. Yeah. We know the author doesn't change her, her perspective. There's some really <laughs> oh, right. interesting... Yes, well, well, we don't have to even go down that road. This is supposed to be about indefensible Harry Potter characters, <laughs> <laughs> not authors. Merope is definitely a good pick. And I think she is... I mean, she is a product of how she was raised, and she didn't know any better, but at the same time, like, you have a, a conscience that you can listen to. Yeah. And if somebody doesn't love you, like Tom Riddle Sr. did not love her, you know, she knew. They never spoke before, really. Yeah. She wanted what she wanted. Yeah. It was selfish. It was her way out of her torment, I mm-hmm. think. But in then she just torments somebody else. Exactly. Time to talk. Additional characters that we love to hate. Pat, let's start with yours. Yours is unexpected, I would say. (laughs) Somebody that I love to hate is Professor Binns. What? He's a Hogwarts professor that is beyond lazy. (laughs) I know you're dead. You napped, it appears, to be the entire time you taught while you were alive. Because you died in your nap. And then just woke up and kept teaching. But like ghosts don't need a nap. You don't need to sleep. You should be out there reading every book that you can, which I know like, yeah, he's not a poltergeist, so he can't like touch a book. But you have Dumbledore. He could have made you a desk that would like automatically flip pages for you or something. Madam Pince doesn't have anything else to do. So like every day she can bring you 10 books. 
like to go through and like you can read you could be the best history professor ever you could be spending all of your time thinking of really cool ways to teach all of this history from the wizarding world and yet he just decides to nap in class so you love to hate him because he's botching this opportunity he's in a really important role and he's screwing it up yeah he's coasting through ghosting like (laughs) okay yes he's a he's a professor he's teaching kids very good like we need those people in the world but he's being lazy about it it is interesting because he could have moved on we know this from nearly have the snick and the veil and everything that when he died he could have made the choice to move on and go wherever it is the ghosts go and not be burdened with his teaching responsibilities anymore which he i mean history is a subject that does not need to be dull and yet he makes it so incredibly dull that it makes me question how much he actually likes doing what he's doing. Yeah. Or did he not move on because he was guilty about being a terrible teacher? So he was like, I'm going to keep being a terrible teacher. (laughs) Right. Like, you're not redeeming yourself in any way. (laughs) I can't let anybody else replace me because I don't want them to know what a better history lesson looks like. But this whole discussion about overstaying your welcome also reminds me of people in Congress the Supreme Court, people hanging around for too long. Yeah. And and we love to hate them because of that. That's true. (laughs) Whether you're on the left or right. I think it's a really interesting point about Professor Benz. I've never thought negatively or positively about him before. I've always felt very neutral towards him as a character. But Pat just kind of revealed something for me. It's like you're lazy in life and in death. And you had a choice. You didn't have to keep doing this. So why did you keep doing it? It's weird. Yeah. And now I'm getting bothered, too, that he continues to hold on to this role. Maybe he just kind of thinks that it's like, and Dumbledore, maybe they both think it's like kind of cute that a ghost is the history teacher at Hogwarts because history ghosts. Diversifying the staff. That's what Dumbledore is all about. It's a diversity move. For the diversity reports at the end of the year. 100%. (laughs) And like, I mean, I do wonder, like, do we know, we don't know anybody who's approached, like, wanting to be this teacher either. So maybe it is the only option that school has. I don't know. But there are history buffs in the muggle world. And I'm sure there's some great ones in the wizarding world as well who would be up for this role. 100%. (laughs) And Vans continues to hog it. Okay. Now I'm annoyed. (laughs) Well, Andrew, speaking of other Hogwarts professors who shouldn't be in their jobs, tell us about your love-to-hate character. Yeah, mine is one we've spoken about many times before, but I'll never pass up an opportunity to love-to-hate on Umbridge. Unlike the other DADA teachers, she's always giving you a new reason to hate her throughout the entire book, all while wearing pink. She only lasts a year at Hogwarts, so she gets what's coming for her, which is also very satisfying. And I still remember my initial anger reading her scenes for the first time when Order of the Phoenix was released. Just that visceral feeling of like, oh my God, she is truly awful. And let's not forget, I mean, it's not just Order of the Phoenix that you can hate her in. You can hate her in Deathly Hallows too, because the Muggleborn Registration Commission and everything that she does to 
persecute those uh, who are not pure blood is pretty sinister. Yeah. Yeah. So that's mine. I don't have too much to add to her this time since we've spoken about her so much. But yeah, she's always been my favorite to hate for sure. Always a good pick. Yeah, I fully agree. What about you, Micah? Yeah. So I know I talked about Petunia on the last Indefensible episode. So I figured why not talk about Vernon (laughs) this time around? And to me, uh, he's just your classic racist uncle. Uh, he, He forces Harry to live under the stairs and then eventually allows him to live in Dudley's spare room. So thanks, Vernon. He treats Harry with regular cruelty. He believes that his and Petunia's treatment of Harry would ultimately prevent Harry's magic from surfacing. So this is a classic example of parents or those who are raising children uh, to try and suppress certain aspects of their children from coming to the surface. You know, he literally questions Harry's motivations every summer that he stays with the Dursleys and he relishes in being able to punish him. So to me, he is just a character that you love to hate. Just some kind of classic Vernon moments that came to mind. Goblet of Fire, he's absolutely disgusted when Arthur shows up with some of the other Weasleys to get Harry uh, for the Quidditch World Cup. He even throws some china at Mr. Weasley at one point um, as Mr. Weasley is trying to help uh, Dudley. I think the the twins had given him some, what was that called? Tongue the tongue. tongue toffee. Yeah, I can't <laughs> say it. Thanks, Pat. <laughs> Similarly, in Half-Blood Prince, he's horrified and offended by Dumbledore's arrival in his home. How dare a wizard step foot in his home? Uh, he actually greedily responds to learning that Harry inherited Grimmauld Place which shows kind of where his values are. And uh, he's similarly similarly shocked by Creature's arrival, which at least that one I can kind of understand. But I, I thought Vernon was probably summed up best in Deathly Hallows uh, when he's talking with Harry prior to the Dursleys having to leave Privet Drive. Uh, Vernon says, well, I don't believe it. I was awake half the night thinking it all over, and I believe it's a plot to get the house. And Harry says, the house? What house? Vernon says, this house, our house. House prices are skyrocketing around here. You want us out of the way and then you're going to do a bit of hocus pocus. And before we know it, (laughs) the deeds will be in your name. And Harry says, are you out of your mind? A plot to get this house? Are you actually as stupid as you look? (laughs) Now, certainly Harry wouldn't have said that uh, in Sorcerer's Stone, but I just think it shows you where Vernon's head is always at. To me, he's like he is the classic racist uncle. It's fun to hate on him when he's getting very angry, thinking of Hagrid uh, confronting the Dursleys and Sorcerer's Stone, or this scene with Harry putting Vernon in his place, or him being offended by Dumbledore's arrival at Privet Drive. Like all these moments are just delicious because because you see. Vernon getting what he deserves after his mistreatment of Harry over the years. Yeah, he is very stupid. (laughs) And there is something so satisfying about watching a character that is so prejudiced, so narrow-minded, and yet also very stupid getting their comeuppance. Just the way that he coaches Harry into, like, in book two, like, coaches him about staying in his room. Yeah. In book three, about do not do anything to 
taunt my sister when she comes to visit us. And even though she is a deplorable human as well, like he coaches every single time about like, do not ruin my reputation. Exactly. It's all about appearances with the Dursleys and it comes at the expense of everything else. Laura, also with what you said, I, with Vernon just being stupid, like when you're reading the book, you're, you're just waiting for those moments. And that, that kind of ties into the whole love to hate factor. Cause you know, anytime that you're going to get him, he's going to do something or he's going to say something that's just going to make him look like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel somewhat similarly about my love to hate character. Um, for this edition, I'm choosing Cornelius Fudge because he is just like the prototypical bumbling bureaucrat who stumbled into this job with, you know, a great amount of power, but he has absolutely no idea what he's doing. He's looking for other people to guide him. So he tries to turn to Dumbledore at various points. He ultimately lets people like Lucius Malfoy kind of color his perceptions of what should be done in government. And he allows them to grease his palms in order to get what they want. Um, you know, and obviously it's no laughing matter what happens under Fudge's leadership, um, because ultimately his denial of Voldemort being back or, you know, attempting to come back has a direct consequence for everyone else in the world. But it's also just funny to watch Fudge converse with these characters. I'm thinking about in the beginning of Prisoner of Azkaban, when he's being very jovial and saying, oh, Harry, we don't send people to Azkaban for blowing up their ants. He says it with such confidence. And then two books later, Harry is like enemy, public enemy number one. Fudge can't stand him. A full trial. Yeah. I mean, Harry's Harry's existence, as soon as it was no longer convenient for Fudge, he completely turns on him. So he is just the prototypical incompetent politician. And I love watching those moments when he, you know, gets his just desserts. I'm thinking about the end of Prisoner of Azkaban when Sirius disappears. I always love laughing about that conversation he has with Snape about like, oh, yes, you're going to get an order of Merlin first class for this, buddy. <laughs> also, you know, the iconic realization at the end of book five. Of, he's, he's back. back. He's back. <laughs> what he's an back. idiot. And I feel like it's always he's fumbling with his bowler hat in those moments where he doesn't know what he's doing. We should do a reading <laughs> of all tell. those fudge scenes and be like, is he always like, twisting his bowler hat in his hands because I feel like that's what's happening. Let's analyze for chapter by chapter when it yep. returns. <laughs> yeah, this is a good pick. And again, just like you're saying here, watching these people get their comeuppance is really wonderful when you spend so much time being very frustrated by these people. It's like here in the muggle world, watching a terrorist get what they've deserved after doing terrible things themselves. Man, lots of real-world references in today's episode. Yeah. <laughs> just got to connect the threads here. Just got to find the threads and connect them. And just like with Dung, everything's in the name, right? With Cornelius, because <laughs> if you fudge things, you make them up, Yeah, right? You're not, you're not truthful. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good catch. Shifting focus here to look at some characters who 
maybe a struggle to defend, but are complex enough to be compelling. This is something we talked about on the last installment of chatting about indefensible characters was, you know, for example, Bellatrix Lestrange, who we won't really be talking about here because we spent a good amount of time on her last time. She is completely indefensible, but she's also a great character. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to dig in on a couple of folks here. It looks like we have Narcissa Malfoy up first. Mm. And I think it shows that she only cares about doing, quote, the right thing when it impacts her personally. But I do have a question for y'all. Is there any sort of redemption that you can see for Narcissa through her saving Harry? It was all a ploy to save her own son. So it was definitely selfish still. But does it say something that she at least valued her own child over her cult? Because (laughs) there are plenty of examples. Yeah. Plenty of examples of people who don't. I think one reason that readers forgive Narcissa and maybe see some redemption for her is because poor Harry has been growing up without a real mother in his life. So finally, some well, of course, there's always been Molly, but here comes another mother who really does save Harry, period, and and, and give him a, a very important assist. And yes, this action is self-serving. However, she was never officially a Death Eater, um, though obviously, yes, she was in support of Lucius. But I also think it's possible that she could have gotten her son out of Hogwarts, even if she told Voldemort that Harry was alive and another fight ensued. This was, I guess, just the easiest path to getting back to Draco. Meaning Harry's dead. Okay, we can go to the castle and I'll be reunited with Draco. So I don't know if this was the only option to protect Draco. And so she did make a choice here to protect Harry as well. I want to believe that she did want to help Harry genuinely in this moment. Yes, Draco was top priority, but I think a part of her did want to help Harry as well. That's very optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) I think that her redemptive arc, and I would put redemptive arc in quotations, began back in Half-Blood Prince when she had Snape make the unbreakable vow to protect Draco at all costs. And then just Voldemort tasking Draco with killing Dumbledore was really the beginning of her getting a firsthand account of how dangerous Voldemort can be. I'm I'm not so sure, she, to your point, Andrew, of her not being a Death Eater, she's kind of around that inner circle, but she's not a part of it. So maybe she doesn't have that full grasp. Um, you know, In Deathly Hallows, her home is taken over by Death Eaters. So f- I'm assuming for her, that might've been quite uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. uh, a woman is murdered over top of her dining room table. <laughs> Her husband is Voldemort's whipping boy. Her (laughs) wand gets taken. And on top of all of that, her son is in a lot of danger. So she realizes, you know, this life isn't for me. Yeah. I don't know if I want this life for me and my son. Yeah. That's what she's saying. Yeah. I think a lot of her thoughts probably changed once Voldemort did come back. I think before that, she may have been like fully on board, but I think the way that Lucius is just being so cocky and so like full of himself thinking that he's 
way more important than he is. Once she realized how much of a front that is that he was putting on, and then once Voldemort was back and did not treat him with any respect, I think that's when she realized like, oh, we are not going to be held in high regard in Voldemort's mind. We are always going to be the family that failed him. So I think that's when she started to kind of pull away. And then when she realized my son is going to be destroyed, basically, because of my husband's actions, I think that's when she was fully just like, I'm going to ride this along until I can get out. Yeah, I think she is a perfect example. And you can see this throughout history of the type of person who falls for the rhetoric of an autocrat thinking they're on my side. So I am supportive. I am 100% in on this rhetoric. Um, And even if I myself am not signing up to be a foot soldier, I support it until they realize the autocrat wasn't actually on your side. They're just using you and your stupidity, gullibility, naivete, whatever you want to call it. They're using you to get to power. And as soon as they have that, they don't need you anymore. They don't care about you. I feel like that is Narcissa's arc, honestly. Like Queenie as well. Yep. Yeah. A hundred and yeah. Oh man. And we could go into that and like, it was a multi-book arc for Narcissa and Queenie was just like, ah, yeah. <laughs> between movies, <laughs> I figured it out. Maybe I just have a soft spot for moms. I want to believe they're all good in some way. Well, I think it w- it was supposed to be a circular moment of a mother's love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Saving the day at the end, mm-hmm. right? Even yeah. if it was, you know, from that mother, <laughs> she still loves her son. What about, this is someone I don't feel like we get to talk about a lot because we talk about him through the lens of being imposter moody, but let's talk about Barty Crouch Jr. I'm surprised you included him. Why? He seems bad to the bone. I don't know if there's anything you can defend here. He is, but I'm also thinking about how interesting of a character he is. I don't know that I, I think I would struggle to defend him, but he is a really interesting character. Even the students at Hogwarts know, like, yeah, he was a death eater and everything, but we learned so much from him. So he's simultaneously a really good teacher and he acts as a mentor to Neville. It definitely adds some interesting shades of gray to the character. I mean, it doesn't, again, suddenly make him good, but I think he's a well-written character. Same way I feel about Snape. Snape is trash, right? But the complexity of his character makes him really compelling, I think. Yeah. But then also, like, your point here about, like, getting Harry to resist the Imperious curse is something that, like, does become, like, pretty good value down the line for Harry along the way like yeah even though with a much stronger wizard like Voldemort he has a harder time resisting it he still does and without having that coaching throughout the year probably not exactly what Voldemort would have wanted but without that coaching he wouldn't have been able to resist that in the graveyard yeah yeah I also think about because there was you know Barty Crouch Jr of course his father And again, 
not that your upbringing excuses making these horrible kinds of choices as an adult. But I think, again, Barney Crouch Jr. is someone who is, as we all are, a product of his circumstances. And then he just made some really terrible choices. I guess you could argue in terms of Barty Crouch Jr. being a good teacher, he needed to put on a convincing Mad-Eye Moody. Yeah. (laughs) So maybe you could just argue that. But then I'm thinking like, okay, let's say Moody, Imposter Moody isn't a great teacher. Then what happens? I don't know. Harry or other students go to Dumbledore and say this teacher sucks. Dumbledore would be like, yeah, I got a whole queue of sucky teachers to deal with. I'll get to him later. Right. Like it wouldn't And would Dumbledore have done anything about it? I feel like Dumbledore no, of course catches not. on to these themes early on and he just lets them ride out through the whole book. <laughs> I'm too old for this. He's like, I knew the whole time. Yeah, because I'm remembering when Harry's name comes out, he's just basically says, Well, we're gonna have to let this play itself out and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. How dare we question the goblet? Yeah. Stupid cup. <laughs> no, I, I agree with everything that was said. I, and who better to teach the dark arts than a Death Eater? But Neville, like maybe that's his redemptive arc. Maybe that, you know, that's his, he feels regret. He feels guilt for what he did to Neville's parents. And that's why he takes a little bit of a liking towards him. It's possible there's, you know, shades of the old Barty still in him. Yeah. And as Court is bringing up on our Patreon right now, He turned Malfoy into a ferret. Had to love him a bit forever for that. Call me toxic, Court says. No, that that (laughs) is my toxic trait. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully we've shed additional light on these characters today, and maybe we're looking at them in new ways. That said, we're going to continue to have a little more fun. So let's move on to our final segment here today. Laura, did you find this Instagram account? I hadn't heard of this before. So this Instagram account is just a good example of how the game works. But it's generally a meme that I think has been going around on social for a number of years now where four sort of like popular or iconic things will be partnered together in like a quad graph. And you have to pick which one's got to go. What does that mean? It, it's up to you. So we could say <laughs> they got to go. Does that mean they just die and they're not part of the story anymore? Does it mean that that we could live with the story without them? But it's usually really hard because you pick people that are instrumental or you pick things that are very iconic. So it's a hard choice. But we are doing an indefensible characters edition with some characters we've chatted about today, some that we chatted about the last time that we did this, and even a couple that we haven't gotten to yet. So for this first round, I'm going to give y'all four characters, and we have to pick which ones gotta go. Barty Crouch Jr., Peeves, Narcissa Malfoy, or Percy Weasley? Percy. Ooh, Percy. I'm saying Peeves. Why Peeves? And why Percy? That dude's useless. You think Peeves is useless? Yeah. He's some fun fodder in the books, but has he actually been helpful throughout the course of the Harry Potter books? I mean, with Umbridge, he was pretty good. Yeah, but I didn't need that. I'm thinking of this question from like, who can we pull out? Not just dies, but like isn't involved at all. Well, the movies would agree with you. The movie, yeah. (laughs) David Heyman said Peeves to this question. (laughs) I've never been a fan of the ghosts. 
I once said I don't need the Weasleys. I definitely don't need the ghosts. Wow. This is like Weasley and ghost erasure going on with you, Andrew. (laughs) Well, so Pat, you said Percy. Why Percy? Why he got to go? I just don't like him. I never have from the beginning. I think he's like the one person that never allows himself to be a teenager or really just like be happy. Like the one time he does, his one redeeming moment to me is when he sneaks around the castle with Penelope Clearwater. That's the one time that he's actually like a kid and kind of fun and rebellious. Otherwise, he's dull and boring and hates on his family and just is kind of all about himself, too. And I just don't like selfish characters. That's fair. I think you've convinced me, Pat. You know, when I think about Percy, um, I also think about the lack of payoff that we get with him finally coming around. Because so much happened while he had his head up his butt the entire series that he only comes around in the 11th hour when it's like, yeah, we've had this without you the entire time. We don't really need you. You're just an extra body. And he only came back because it was beneficial for him. Yeah, He didn't have any support from the ministry anymore that was good support. And when he tries to like make Ron leave Harry as a friend too, like, bro, you've had this kid in your house (laughs) before and now you don't want to like... Like you slept in the same building, you slept in the same tower with him. And now you're like, oh, nope, let's cut this guy out just because Fudge said so. I agree on the Percy front because I, I just think Peeves is, he's the comic relief of the series, along with Fred and George, obviously, but he's just, he's part of the fabric of Hogwarts. You can't just get rid of him. <laughs> No, you can't. And that's the problem. That's the point. But this is my opportunity to get rid of him. Oh, man. I'm going to come up with one of these. That's just like a ghost edition for Andrew to be like, you can only pick I'll one. I'll never be able to choose. <laughs> just like Ben's will never leave. I'll never be able to choose. And I'm surprised, honestly, Andrew, with the way you feel about the Weasleys, that you would just not take the opportunity to just get rid of another one of them. Well, speaking of characters I love to hate. I enjoyed watching Percy be a terrible person and then get his comeuppance. Every family has like the black sheep and Percy is of the Weasleys. The red sheep, you could say. Okay, so it looks like Percy won that one if we're going off of votes. Percy's out. Next round. I think this is going to be a little bit more challenging. Uh, Our choices are Lucius Malfoy, Severus Snape, Bellatrix Lestrange, and Fenrir Greyback. Ooh. This is like Death Eaters, former and present edition. Love to hate Bellatrix too. Snape, absolutely critical. Yeah. Fenrir, oof, obviously terrible. But I think I have to stick to my guns here since I said that Lucius is a terrible character, completely indefensible. I think he got to go. And maybe Draco would have been a better person without Lucius in his life. I'm painting an alternate reality here where, I don't know, maybe Lucius died shortly after the birth of Draco. And um, Narcissa's raising Draco as a single parent. Narcissa removes them from that those Death Eater circles. Yeah, like if Lucius was killed by Voldemort or something, and then she oh, she yeah. leaves the that she leaves the dark arts for good, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And she also kind of strikes me as an opportunist again, very much like 
I am gravitating towards, you know, whichever side the bread is buttered on, because I think it's going to convenience me the most. But I think if Lucius is out of the picture, that changes things for her because she can just presumably she inherits all the wealth so she can just be a rich elite. She can still be prejudiced as hell. Right. So she would still probably bring Draco up in that ideology, but maybe it wouldn't be quite so gung ho on the Dark Lord side of things. The tough part for me, though, is that without him, Chamber of Secrets doesn't happen. So that's right. Grayback, like you could get rid of him and then Lupin never becomes a werewolf. Right. Which probably changes the dynamic of the Marauders and that whole situation. Yeah, you could get rid of Bellatrix and somebody else would have to torture Neville's parents. Somebody else would have to kill Sirius. Somebody else would have to get pregnant with Voldemort's love child. Actually, (laughs) if that prevents Cursed Child from existing, that might not be so bad. Yeah, for me, it was a toss up between Lucius and Fenrir. But I think I'm going to go with with Greyback just because anybody who primarily preys on children like we're told about him i just can't get behind so he's going to be my one to go i'll agree lupin's my favorite character minus the werewolf portion of it (laughs) so we got two for gray back i'm very torn here because i really don't like lucius as a character Mm -hmm. so i really do want to get rid of him but it does fundamentally change the arc of the series but i will say i don't think getting rid of bellatrix would fundamentally change the arc of the series because you could just have another death death eater do the things that she did and then no cursed child maybe it was narcissa instead still in the family Oh, that's what was going on at Malfoy Manor. <laughs> that's why she's okay with the the house being taken over. Oh, boy. Oh, man. Good times had by all. Yeah, I'll say Bellatrix. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit edgy here. I like Bellatrix too much to let her go personally. I do too. I like the Fenrir pick, though. I think that's the most inconsequential of these four, so... But still, I'm sticking with Lucius because I would like to have seen that alternate reality. And your girl Lavender lives. Yeah. Maybe we should keep him. (laughs) (laughs) I've made peace with Lavender dying. I've just, (laughs) it's just been very hard for me to understand why we haven't gotten a firm answer on it. I've never been frustrated because I like Lavender. I just wanted to know what the heck happened to her already. Well, that concludes today's discussion. If you have any feedback, you can send an L to MuggleCast at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. To send a voice message, record it using the Voice Memo app on your phone and then email us that file or use our phone number, which is 192033Muggle. That's 192038-4453. Next week on MuggleCast, the physics of the Wizarding World. Laura, this is a discussion that you and your boyfriend, Mark, are actually dreaming up, right? Yeah. So uh, Mark and I have had a number of discussions over the years about this. And it honestly originally started with him wondering, uh, because he's he's definitely read Harry Potter, but he's not, uh, he's not like the one percenter of fans that we all are. So he was like, wait a second. They can make food appear from nowhere, right? (laughs) 
And uh, I was like, yes. And he was like, but they make the house elves prepared in the kitchen still. And that started a whole conversation about like, well, actually, from a physics perspective, you can't just make something appear from nothing with no consequences to the environment around you. And we've talked about that. We've talked about Quidditch. So there are lots of different rabbit holes for us to go down. And I think it's a perfect kickoff back to Hogwarts season discussion for the show. So really looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And Mark's going to join us and we'll get a taste of what it's like to live at Casa de T. Yep. <laughs> Hearing the discussions that go on there. Evidently. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. It's nerdy. It's no, fun. Looking- it's great. Oh, you're talking about Casa de T? Yeah. Well, and the conversations we have, which I see you're going to get a preview of on next week's episode. Okay, now it's time for Quizage. Last week's question. In book canon, what color hair does Ferenz have? And the correct answer is white blonde. Congrats to those who submitted the correct answer, including Morgan, Erkin, Kaladin Stormblessed, Buff Daddy, I am very giggly, giggly, jiggly. Andrew, you want to take this one? Potter! Very good, very good, very good. <clears throat> Hufflepuff, oh, sorry, Hufflepuffle, Count Ravioli Reborn, Picket Wicket, Karen, Hallow Wolf, and I'm the only one awake at a sleepover right now. Oh, fun. Next week's quizzes question. What? Did the muggle, Mr. Roberts, say to the Weasley family as they left the Quidditch World Cup? Listeners can submit their answers on the MuggleCast website. Couple more reminders before we wrap up the show. Make sure you're following MuggleCast for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Micah. I'm Laura. And I'm Pat. I'm Pat. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.